I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. This is Crime Don't Pay May, and it barrels on, serving up this week's offering, 1964's The Killers. Join us. This was a film I had desperately sought out when I was still in high school. Turned on to it by a mention from Entertainment Weekly, Alas, it was the late 90s, and the proliferation of blockbuster videos meant that older classic and cult movies were being systematically culled from the shelves and destroyed to make way for the 50 or odd so copies of Mercury Rising and Blues Brothers 2000. Clearly two films that hold up today. Regardless, I couldn't find it anywhere by me. So, I had to wait, a familiar refrain for most of my stories, until I got to college, and I can get it from the local mom-and-pop video store. Now, clutch your pearls, folks, because I loved this. It's based on a short story by Ernest Hemingway, and is a remake of a 1946 film of the same title. And I gotta say, I've seen the original movie, and it's great as well. It's got Burt Lancaster, Ava Gardner, Charles McGraw, William Conrad, Albert Decker, and they are all fabulous in their own right. But this, albeit now a 50-plus-year-old film, attempted to modernize that story. And modernize it, it does. Director Don Siegel, the hard-charging man who we love here at the LSCE, who has helmed some of our faves and most likely going to be future episodes, such as Hell is for Heroes, Dirty Harry, Charlie Varick, and Escape from Alcatraz, he took on this challenge to create a made-for-TV film that would be a Universal Studios-backed picture for NBC as a movie of the week. Siegel being Siegel made something truly awesome, but insanely violent for television, and it was thoroughly rejected outright by NBC. Universal stepped back in and took over the finalization of the film and released it theatrically, all to positive reviews. And it's better they did it that way, because this is something that should be seen on a big screen. So what makes this so great? Well, from my perspective, you have Lee Marvin and Clue Gulliger as a pair of hitmen, John Cassavetes as a doomed race car driver, Angie Dickinson as a treacherous gun mole, and the murderous criminal mastermind behind all of this mayhem, none other than our very own 40th President of the United Goddamn States, Ronald Reagan. I am personally not a fan in any way, shape, or form of Ronald Reagan as a politician. But to see him, a major figure of my childhood, up on the big screen, plotting, manipulating, threatening, slapping Angie Dickinson around, bumping characters off, it adds a really strange layer of surreal to this whole ordeal. 
And that is right in my wheelhouse. Temptation never came in a more dangerous package. I don't believe you. Explosively new. Ernest Hemingway's The Killers. The wheels of fate challenge the killers who reach across today's great speedways to trap their victims as they roar across the screen in their Cobras, Ferraris, Maseratis at 160 miles per hour. Only Hemingway could have conceived it. Only today's screen could make the characters come so vividly alive. Lee Marvin as Charlie. Who paid him $25,000 for each killing? Well, I gotta find out what makes a man decide not to run. Why all of a sudden he'd rather die. Angie Dickinson as Sheila. She knew more than one way to kill a man. John Cassavetes as Johnny North, who boasted there was nothing that moved that he couldn't handle. And Sheila moved. You have a better idea. Unconditional surrender. Ronald Reagan as Browning who planned a million-dollar heist and got more than he bargained for. You get back to the hotel and stay there. I like it here. Well, I can change that in a hurry. Clue Gulliger as Lee. With or without a pistol, he was deadly as a cobra. Mickey, you will tell us everything. The way he's got it planned. There'll be just the two of you in the getaway car. And more than a million dollars. What are you doing? I'm gonna get to them before they get to me. No. I'm gonna set you straight, man. You got it all wrong. This is no game. Now I want the truth, the whole truth. So help you. God, you're going out that way to express. Do you understand that? We open on a pair of hitmen, Charlie and Lee, as played by Lee Marvin and Clue Gulliger. And they arrive at a school for the blind to make good on a contract, the killing of one Johnny North, as played by John Cassavetes. Charlie is a hardened, no-nonsense professional. He speaks softly, slowly, and he doesn't hesitate to utilize violence when necessary. Lee is the young up-and-comer the protege of Charlie, and is a little more of a loose cannon who seems to genuinely take pleasure in his wet work, which can clearly be seen as he messes with the terrified secretary of the school to locate the classroom that Mr. North is currently teaching in. We're looking for a Jerry Nichols. Does he work here? Oh, yes, indeed. Where is he? Well, I, I'm afraid you won't be able to see him now here. He'll be in class another hour, hour and a half. I'm sorry, lady. We don't have the time. Where is he? Why, I told you he's teaching his class. In a... Where is he, lady? He, he, he's up, upstairs. Oh, you just sit there, relax, take a little nap. Everything's going to be all right, do you understand? Mr. Mann! 
A fellow instructor finds the brutalized secretary and attempts to warn North by phone from another classroom, only to be confused and horrified when North dejectedly waves his fears off. Uh, excuse me, fellas. Uh, Eddie, you want to take this? Feel the points here in this distributor cap and then pass it on to all you geniuses. <laughs> That's right, this is Mr. Nickel. Two men are coming after you. Miss Watson thinks they're going to kill you. Oh, I see. Thank you. You don't understand, Mr. Nichols. Should I call the police? Try to get help? No. No, don't bother. It's all right, I... I know them. Mr. Nichols. North does attempt to clear his classroom to protect his students. He picks up a few items, puts them away, and proceeds to stand calmly at his desk, passively waiting for the two hitmen to arrive. As they come through the door, his inaction is met with initial confusion from the two men, but they rally and complete their task, shooting and killing North where he stands. As they end up discussing the job later, Charlie is really having a hard time with understanding why the target didn't run. Charlie, ever since we got on this train, you've been like a dummy. What? Okay. Okay, okay. You know, Lee, I've hit a few guys in my time. True. If they had a chance, they always ran. But he just stood there and took it. First thing you told me was never to think about a job, Charlie. Another thing, I recognized him the minute I saw him. Oh, yeah, well, he was a hot shot race driver. Named Johnny North. Everybody knew him, so what? The only thing that counts is with 25,000 ahead of the game. Yeah, that's another thing. 25,000 for a simple hit. We walk in, we put him down, we walk out. That's a lot of money for a simple hit. No, not for me, Ed. And he knew we were coming. That day must have gotten to a phone because he was tipped off. But he just stood there. That's one. 25,000 for a simple hit. I never got more than 10 in my life. That's two. Oh, I happen to know that Johnny North is in on a big mail robbery in California. He's supposed to have gotten away with over a million bucks. Left the other guys holding the bag. So we got a contract to knock him off, okay? What happened to the million? Spending. Nobody spends a million. No, he didn't have the money, otherwise we would have leaned on him. Makes sense. I'll tell you something else that makes more sense. Whoever laid this contract wasn't worried about the million dollars. And the only people that don't worry about a million dollars are the people that have a million dollars. Only we don't know who hired us for the job. So, maybe we find out. Tempted by tracking down the missing loot, the two go off to chat with some of North's former associates, heading first to Miami to find one Earl Sylvester, as played by Claude Atkins, North's former mechanic. Wouldn't you know it, Earl blames Johnny's career-ending accident on a dame, a woman who started coming around, hanging by the track by the name of Sheila Farr. She got Johnny all off his training, 
getting him not to focus on his driving, falling in love, all that sort of junk. Sheila keeps him out late, drinking champagne, loving him up so he's doing worse and worse at the track each time. John does end up having a massive crash at the track and is badly injured, damaging specifically his left eye, losing part of his peripheral vision, and ending his driving career effectively immediate. Earl breaks the news to him that he has been in the hospital and Sheila has been using him. John has been her man on the side, and she is really a kept woman controlled by a rough mob boss by the name of Browning, as played by Reagan. He's part of a long line of athletes that Sheila has had dalliances with, and all of them have met with tragic ends, implying that Browning has had them killed as time's gone on. John is heartbroken, and when Sheila does finally come to see him in the hospital, he turns her away. Earl finishes by explaining that that was the last time he spoke to John, who left his partner to go work on his own as a pit mechanic. Our hitman then leaves Sylvester, broken and sad, and travel to find another accomplice of Browning's, a man who was on the job and could explain what actually happened to North. They talk to a low-level second-story man by the name of Mickey Farmer, as played by Norman Fell. Farmer is found in a gymnasium utilizing a steam sweat box, which quickly becomes an instrument of torture that Lee puts to good use. Oh, Mickey. Did you say, Charlie? Long time no sir. Yeah. I'm just getting out of here. I'm going to sit right there. Huh? Just relax. We want to talk to you. Is this the uh, control for that thing? Yeah. Why? We ran over an old friend of yours, Johnny North. North? Friend of mine? Johnny North. He used to drive. Oh, yeah, yeah, that North, yeah. I, I seem to remember him now. I, I think I met him once. It's funny. We heard he got away with a big bundle, and we thought maybe some of it belonged to you. Did you find it? Did you lose it? We want to know all about the big job. Mm, you uh, want to lose a lot of weight in a hurry. You better... Uh, hey, fellas, hey, come on. Huh? Hey, please. Please! Please! You were in on the big job. Who else? It's through Mickey that they learn that Browning was putting together a job to rob a U.S. mail truck that happened to be carrying over a million dollars in cash. And while he had his plan down, Browning himself could not successfully drive the getaway car during the practice runs in the allotted two-minute window it would take to make it from the robbery to the checkpoint. Sheila convinces Browning that they need to get John to help them. Browning is wary, but agrees to hire John as the getaway driver. So it is up to Sheila to track John down and offer him $100,000 to be their driver, which he begrudgingly accepts, still nursing some hurt feelings for her. And over time, she slowly begins to reciprocate, much to the anger of Browning. While John is souping up the getaway car, he nearly comes to blows with Browning when he ends up slapping Sheila for openly defying him. We transfer the registered sacks to my car, North and I take off. How do I know how much money will be in the truck? 
We don't exactly. The truck picks up the weekend receipts from the resorts up the coast and averages over a million. The whole job shouldn't take more than two minutes. Then we drive the truck and the drivers into the woods and get rid of all the fingerprints. Then we meet at Curly's in Ridgeview on Friday. Okay. How's your end of it going? Fine, fine. She'll uh, do what I want her to. I'm talking about the car. So what? What's the point? I like what you're doing with the car. Just stick with that. You get back to the hotel and stay there. I like it here. Go on, get moving. I said, I like it here. Well, I can change that in a hurry. Sanchara, get out of After the job, we'll settle this north. Let's settle it now! John is ready to kill Browning, but the crew manages to separate them before any further damage can be done. They agree to settle things later, and that's when Mickey wraps up his portion of the tale by explaining that the robbery went off without a hitch. When Johnny and Browning were in the getaway car, Johnny apparently pulled a gun on Browning and forced him out of the moving vehicle, making off with all the cash and stiffing the entire crew. Mickey tells them that if he doesn't believe him, talk to Browning himself. And the pair of hitmen take him up on just that. Browning has set up a real estate development in L.A. and claims now to be an honest businessman who denies having any knowledge of what North did with any of the money. No, Johnny North lives very modestly uh, for a man of his means. Johnny North? Lee, I think he's catching on. Mm-hmm. We hit Johnny North last week, and we had a long talk with Mickey Farmer. George Fleming is dead. You know who that leaves? You and the dame, and a missing million bucks. Oh, and uh, me and my partner. <laughs> Browning Development Corporation, you've come a long way from being an ex-male uh, robber. I'm making out, but I've done it the hard way. Would you like to take a look at my books? <laughs> Which set? We don't read well. <laughs> you said you hit north. Was it a contract? That's right. Why? Who bought it? We figure you did, Jack. <laughs> Are you crazy? Sure, I wanted North. He double-crossed me and made off with a whole bundle. And maybe I would have killed him if I could have laid my hands on him. But first, I'd have gotten my money back. Maybe. Maybe not. Where's the, um, Sheila Fardang? Boys dug deep. I don't know where she is. You better find out, Jack. Did you see her after the job? Sure I did. At Ridgeview. Her and Mickey and George. Only when she found out that 
Johnny'd gotten away with the money, she blew up and took off. My, my. And you were the number one brain. It didn't sound funny to you that she throws you over right when she needs a mill ticket. Johnny North runs off with a million dollars. He's got eyes for her. And from what I hear, she's got eyes for him. You must have lit right on your head when you got kicked out of that car, Jack. Otherwise, you'd put two and two together, you know. Do you think that cheap little... We don't think anything, Jack. Browning does feed them Sheila's location at a local L.A. hotel. Charlie and Lee set an appointment with her and then show up early to catch her off guard and to deny Browning a chance to get the drop on them. Unfortunately for them, a clerk spots the two hitmen entering the building and calls Browning, alerting him that Sheila indeed has visitors. The two hitmen don't want to put up with any of Sheila's lies and cut right to the heart of the matter, dangling her out of her hotel room window by her ankles to get the end of the story. I uh, don't like your story, lady. Oh. Would you tell me another one, please? tell you it's true that's exactly what happened if johnny didn't have the money then it's lost nobody ever loses a million dollars Sheila goes on to explain that the night before the robbery, she did indeed meet with Johnny and told him that Browning was planning on killing him after the job was finished. Johnny double-crossed Browning and then drove to a prearranged rendezvous point at a motel to pick Sheila up and run off with the money. As he ended up walking through the door, he sees Sheila sitting in the room next to an armed Browning waiting for him. Sheila and Browning were married. This was their end solution to make John their patsy. Telling him to do it quick, Sheila leaves the room while Browning shoots at John, wounding him but not killing him. John manages to run off into the night, and Browning is unable to finish the job proper. John getting away is clearly the catalyst for Browning hiring the hitmen to eventually eliminate him, the only man who can tie them back to the mail truck theft. Charlie is finally satisfied upon hearing this, grabbing Sheila. He plans to head over to her and Browning's residence and collect their cash. Walking out of the building, shots begin to ring out. 
Lee spins and drops to the sidewalk, killed by a sniper, where Charlie is knocked to the ground, grievously wounded. Browning is then shown driving back to his house, a scoped rifle in tow. Sheila and Browning begin to furiously pack, ready to escape with the money, only to find a bleeding Charlie standing at their front door. Sheila attempts to save herself, blaming everything on Browning. Charlie, dying on his feet, ends up killing Browning and turns towards his treacherous wife. Please. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I, I had no choice. Lady, I don't have the time. Killing her with a single shot, Charlie grabs the suitcase of money and staggers out the door. As he wobbles across the lawn, he ends up stumbling towards his car and collapses dead, the cash spilling out around him, as the sounds of police sirens can be heard in the background. As previously stated, The Killers is based on a Hemingway short story by the same name. It was part of a series of stories that Hemingway wrote featuring a reoccurring protagonist, a young Nick Adams, who was partly a stand-in for Hemingway's own adolescence and his transition into adulthood. As a character, Nick ends up in being in, now I believe I haven't read all of these stories, uh, 24 stories in total by Hemingway. Now, sometimes he's just the narrator or even a bystander, but nonetheless, he is a pivotal part of this particular story. It's set in 1920s Summit, Illinois, but it's in Cook County, so just say Chicago. And two men enter into a lunchroom where Nick works, and they end up tying the staff up, and one of them would be Nick, and starting to inquire about where they can locate a man named Ole Andresen, a Swedish boxer as they plan to kill him. Eventually, they leave, and Nick is able to escape and go try to warn Anderson that these men are coming for him. He takes the information in, but doesn't react, instead lying on his bed and stating that it doesn't matter, nothing can be done. Nick is confused and departs. Then he decides to leave town. The story ends. Now, it's so simple. It's a fleeting, slice-of-life occurrence. And it's also framed as if it's kind of boring. This isn't a man deciding he's going to go order a steak and then instead decides to order chicken. This is a man refusing to react to a malevolent force outside of his door, which opens up intrigue that we, the reader, will never understand, nor get to learn about. The story ends, which is Hemingway's story as a setup is supposed to bother us. It's supposed to make the reader ask why, long after we finished and long after Nick has drifted onto his next adventure, never learning why they were there to kill Anderson, nor understanding why he won't run. It's one of the great things I love about how the film approaches it. The take that a person asking why, in this case, is Charlie. He can't wrap his head around a man who knows he's going to die and still chooses to face it, rather than attempting to flee or even fight it. Such an individual must have a hell of a reason, and it's a clever, if not unsettling, device to have Charlie, 
with Lee in tow, torture and strong-arm his way to the truth, with us the audience along for the entire ride. An interesting way to frame it, especially based on such sparse source material, and gives us something really to work with here as an audience, which also points out why I would much rather watch adaptations of Hemingway's works than actually read them from the page. But hey, that's just me. So let's unpack this. This was the last movie that Ronald Reagan did before he entered politics full time. I don't know if you've seen any of Reagan's previous works, but I can honestly say this is the best thing I have ever seen him in. He apparently was not happy with the role, and he hated the fact that he was the bad guy. And in particular, he didn't like the fact that he slapped Angie Dickinson around. Several accounts back this up, because apparently he wouldn't stop telling folks about his apparent guilt over the role. Dickinson herself has commented on this publicly. President Reagan was such a sweet man, and every time we, and you know in movies, we don't really hit. You all know that by now. Uh, and every time I met him, which was maybe five or six times after he became president, he would say, I'm sure glad I didn't really have to hit you. And he would say it the same way and the same sweetness every time. He I'm kind of sure some of this has been shaded by his political background, and old Ron couldn't wax on about his acting days where he was the bad guy. I get it. He was manhandling lady on screen. He was hiring trained killers to bump off a rival. He was attempting to murder them with a rifle from a distance. It would have been interesting for him to acknowledge this role, but it was not going to be considered mainstream or popular one. Although, undoubtedly, it is a thought-provoking one. Playing the evil mastermind of a noir thriller, it makes me kind of want to rethink a bunch of the 80s. But no matter. I get it. Mr. President, you don't want to talk about the time you were a bad guy. Again, this movie has some of our favorite character actors in Mr. Clue Gulliger, and we will be doing a profile on him specifically sometime in the near future. I love Clue Gulliger. Clue has been attached to all kinds of interesting roles, a variety of different franchises, and seeing him here, young, in his prime, playing this health-conscious hitman, it's simply a treat. The way he plays Lee, a killer who spends his downtime doing push-ups, thoroughly drinking his milk, taking exquisite pleasure in his work, is masterful. Watching him work off of Marvin is a pleasure, and Clue has been given several talks about this film, where he feels it was really a missed opportunity by NBC when they ended up backing out and leaving it up to Universal to finish the film properly. They shot it with film, and uh, they had a short schedule, but at the same time, Don was used to short schedules because he came from 
studio contract days, you know, at uh, 20th and uh, Warner Brothers. And so he, he understood that kind of thinking. So he went right along with it. He wasn't the prima donna. He just, he worked within the framework of the studio's idea. So some of it worked very, very, very well uh, on the big screen. So from that point on, they released it, you know, over and over again, and uh, it made a lot of money, made millions of dollars profit, and to this day it's still making profit. In retrospect, uh, I think NBC made a horrendous and remarkable error. I think, number one, they could have reaped every prize given that year in the acting, cinematography, the writing, uh, the everything. Apparently, Lee Marvin had a hard time keeping it together towards the end of the film. As Clue here recounts, the final scene that was done so well in reality was just Marvin stumbling around, playing a great death scene because he was actually blasted out of his mind. The last death scene thereby hangs a tale. We were filming in this beautiful area of Hollywood, over by Lake Hollywood. The last scene, 7.30 came and uh, actors were there. We were went in place and uh, made up and dressed up. And cameraman had set the lights and everything. We'd had stand-ins and no Lee. 8.30, no Lee. 9.30, no Lee. 10.30, no Lee. 11.30, no Lee. 12.30, no fucking Lee. 1 o'clock, shit. Here comes a car around the curb up there, all over the street, comes in, comes right on the lawn, stops, tears up the guy's lawn, and Lee stumbles out, drunk as a skunk. See, this was the last shot, so he thought he could play that game. And how right he was. Don showed him what he wanted him to do. He got in that house. He came out, drunk as a skunk, but he looked like he was dying from a gunshot. <laughs> you know, so one of the villains had shot him. And, and he came out, and he did that thing that Don said he gave him. I don't know if he did or not. It's like a Lee Marvin thing where he held up one finger like he had a gun. He was going to shoot. And, and man, I mean, he keeled over. It's the greatest death shot scene I have ever seen greatest death on screen I think I've ever seen. He hit that he hit that ground and that those stones so hard. It didn't phase him of course he was drunk as a skunk. He didn't even feel it. But I mean he really hit it. He God he went down like a stone. Hey, look. If you survived being a Marine in the Pacific during the war maybe you are entitled to getting a bit blitzed from time to time. Shockingly, this would not be the only point in his career that Marvin enjoyed, perhaps, too many martunis on a film set, and the cast and crew had to deal with those ramifications. But I guess that's going to be a story for another day. As far as the version of The Killers that we screened here at the LSCE, we watched the Criterion Collection double-disc DVD 
that comes with both the 1946 version as well as the 1964 version, loaded with extras. Interviews with Gulliger, memos from Siegel, publicity stills, essays from various crime writers, interviews with Burt Lancaster, Shelley Winters, Stacy Keach reading the actual short story that the film was based on, as well as other essays and trailers abound. It is a superior product that should not be overlooked, and it can be yours on DVD from Amazon for a cool $20, and that is a steal. Just putting it out there, folks. Again, I will reinforce, we don't get anything for recommending films here at the LSCE, but we do think it's important that people still purchase physical media and ensure that we keep getting these amazing films cleaned up and released for our collective enjoyment. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you all for listening. If you like us, please consider following us on Facebook at the Linden Street Cinema Experience. Please recommend us to friends and follow or subscribe to us at the podcast platform of your choice. If you are a user of iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review from you. If you want to get in touch with us, make comments, ask questions, send us wonderful things, please, please feel free to email us at lindenstreetcinemexperience at gmail.com. So, until next time, please take care and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you.